0: Jeremy and Matt here, just uh, letting you know that we're doing something new for this episode called Cornucopia One-on-One. It's a series of interviews, less scripted and less produced, but equally informative. Long story short, we had a lot of fun making our first six episodes, but it was also extremely time-consuming. Plus, it's pedicab season here in San Francisco, and we're working the tricycle hustle to pay the bills. So we're trying to produce something a lot more quickly here, and it's a bit of an experiment, but hope you enjoy Toodles. (laughs) This is Cornucopia. This is Matt Levine. Today we're speaking with Michael Moss, an investigative journalist. Moss won the Pulitzer Prize in 2010 for his work on contaminated industrial ground beef. He's a former war reporter, and his book, Salt, Sugar, Fat, was a New York Times bestseller. Mm -hmm. Michael, welcome to Cornucopia. Oh, thanks for having me. Great talking to you. For those of us that have spent a lot of years in the food and beverage industry, you're sort of like a guy who saw the great and powerful Oz and got behind the curtain. (laughs) Uh, So can you start out by talking about the obesity and diabetes epidemics, how In your work, you saw the complicity of giant food corporations. Yeah, sure. Matt, you know, I I started writing this book,
1: Salt Sugar Fat, when I was writing about a different problem in food, which was pathogens. And you mentioned the Pulitzer for contaminated hamburger that I wrote about. I was kind of still writing about E. coli and salmonella and the problems that the food industry was having, controlling those contaminants. When I had dinner with one of my best sources in the meat industry, and he said to me, you know, Michael, as tragic as these episodes of contamination are, um, you really should take a look at things that my industry, and he was talking about the meat industry, intentionally adds to their products over which they have absolute control. He was concerned about salt. um, And when I looked at salt, it was a natural segue to look at fat and then sugar, as this unholy trinity on which the processed food industry relies deeply to make their products low-cost, uh, convenient, and incredibly alluring. And boy, was he right. I mean, the, the numbers on the public health consequence of our becoming over-dependent on packaged foods uh, that collectively are not healthy for us is staggering. Um, we are approaching 40 percent, a 40 percent rate of obesity in this country. Clinical obesity, not just overweight, which is another one third of the population. Um, diabetes was at something like 22 million last time I checked, and there's a, a couple multipliers of that. Of people who may be uh, who may be prone to getting diabetes and what some people call pre-diabetes, and you know, including sort of a financial cost as well, added medical expenses and lost productivity is is, is equally humongous. And so that's why I've sort of spent the last five years sort of focused on not on contaminants, but this kind of you know this intentional calculated uh, drive by the industry to, to sell more and more product by making it more and more alluring.
0: The remarkable thing that I didn't understand, they're actually looking to change the way our brain and tongue react.
1: Yeah, sure. I mean, you know, the companies are populated by um, chemists, technologists. Um who who certainly don't see what they're doing as evil. I mean their job is to hone in on those three pillars of processed food convenience, low cost, and allure. Um, and they they use an extraordinary amount of of really fascinating but but in some ways disturbing science to sort of do that. Um, you know sugar remains one of their biggest tools, and I was lucky to spend time with a gentleman named Howard Moskowitz who, is responsible for some of the biggest icons in the grocery store uh, in what he calls food engineering. He was trained in high math and then experimental psychology at Harvard. And he, he walked me through his uh, recent creation of a new soda flavor for Dr. Pepper, in which he started with no less than 60 versions of a, of, of, of a sweet flavor, each one just slightly different than the next one, and subjected those to or more consumer taste tests around the country and then took the data and threw it in his computer and did his high-map regression analysis thing, and out came these bell-shaped curved charts that kind of look like the charts that kids get graded on at school, except at the top of the chart is not the dreaded middle C. It's the perfect amount of sweetness, not too little and not too much. And it was Howard who coined the term the bliss point to describe that perfect amount of sweetness. And and I should mention too, before we talk about salt or fat, it's it's the, the problem became not that the industry was perfecting the bliss point for things like ice cream and soda and cookies. Mm-hmm. They marched around the grocery store adding sugar to things that didn't be that didn't used to be sweet. So now you know, bread has added sugar and a bliss point, an engineered bliss point for sweetness. Yogurt can still have you know as much sur- as much sugar as a, as a sur- per serving as uh, some ice creams. Um, pasta sauce is right. Uh, I mean, a tiny half cup serving of some of them have the equivalent of a couple of Oreo cookies worth of, of the sugar. Um, and what this and what this has done over the recent years is created this expectation In us that everything should be sweet, and this is especially difficult for young kids who are little walking bliss points for sugar. Um, Their brains think you know equate sugar with fuel for their growing bodies, and so when you when you drag them over to the produce aisle and try to get them to eat more of those things, we all should be eating more of. And I'm talking broccoli and Brussels sprouts and spinach. And they don't get that sweet taste, they get some of the other basic tastes, sour, bitter, salty even. Um, uh, you're gonna, that's why you get a rebellion on your hand. It's, it's, it's sort of shaping our taste and desire and expectancy for sugar, which was so hugely influential in, in, in shaping and, and increasing our dependency on, on processed foods. Bliss um, Point for sugar, Fat is almost as powerful to the industry. It's, it's not yet considered a, a taste to the taste buds. It's still considered to be sort of a sensation. There's a nerve that comes down to the top of your mouth that also goes to the reward center of your brain that sends back that signal, wow, love that. And fat and they describe as the mouthfeel. Um, it has a way of kind of sneaking up on you on products, but it's one of the reasons why processed cheese became such a big added ingredient in many grocery store products um, in realizing that, A, it was a great way to get rid of excess cheese, but, B, it increased the allure of, of any number of products. And that's why we started seeing multiple numbers of cheese on top of pizza and then cheese put inside pizza crust. Um, and then salt, of course, they talk about salt as having the flavor burst because it's it's typically the first thing that the tongue will sense on the top of a chip or a cracker or what have you, um, but also goes right to that part of the brain that rewards you for doing good things and, and, um, and provides a very sort of powerful third leg of that of the trio.
0: About eight years ago, I began mentoring a kid in the Bayview Hunters Point neighborhood of San Francisco and we went to a restaurant and he was delivered an apple juice fresh pressed and we had just met and he didn't want to be rude but the minute he drank that I could tell he didn't like it and it was fascinating because this is before I read your book. What he asked me was, would it be possible to get some sugar? What was clear to me in reading your book and thinking about that moment was the challenge in actually creating this expectancy, as you say. The, the other point in that is I can eat a jar of refrigerated pickles, good briny kosher dills. Not only can I eat a 32-ounce jar of pickles, but I'll also drink the pickle juice. You write about the chicken or the egg phenomena. And can you add a little distinction between some of our natural desires for food versus what is now this very complicated and almost Machiavellian manufactured desires that uh, companies are creating in both adults and children. Yeah, so there's a lot to
1: unpack that. I mean, sugar is very easy for the industry to kind of try to defend itself um, because we're born liking sugar. And 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 they can sort of say, well, look, we're just kind of responding to what people like. And t- kids typically have Double the the, or rather, like a sweetness level twice as high as adults. So I mean, they are, they are just craving sweet stuff. I mean, it's interesting about, uh, about, about fruit juice. It's actually very sweet, and I'm wondering if that. If that child maybe wasn't missing something else, if, if he was a soda drinker and was missing the the bubbles or some other kind of flavoring going on in the sugar in the in the soda, other than other than sugar, where the industry where it kind of gets more interesting is with salt, because we're not born liking salt. We don't we don't develop a fondness for salt until some six months of age. And there's a group of scientists uh, who who did a who did an elegant study looking at two groups of kids. One that was that was raised on on grocery store food, which is quite salty generally, and, and others who got kind of fresh vegetables and fruits from their parents and and that, that wasn't salted. And and by the time they were in preschool, of course, the grocery store eating um, kids were much more apt to be licking the salt shaker when they were you know out at the pizza restaurant and I say that laughingly because I caught one of my own kids doing that once. But in that case, you can hold the industry accountable, I think, for actually creating uh, like and excessive likes for for some of these ingredients, and in this case, sort of salt. Un-sort of coupling ourselves from (laughs) a high dependency and likeness is, is a difficult thing. I mean, Salt, it's, but it's doable. I mean, it's harder for kids, but it's certainly doable. And anybody who's been, for instance, on a low-salt diet under doctor's orders knows that after about five or six weeks, you can hardly eat much of these things in the grocery store. They taste way too salty. So you can bring down your liking of salt through, through some effort. It takes some time, <laughs> but it can be done more so than the industry, that was one of the surprising things about me in, in the research for, for for salt sugar fat the book was is that was that as dependent as we've become on their using gobs of of these additives to, to, to make their product, the industry is even more dependent. Um, because to them, sugar and fat and, and, and especially salt are miracle ingredients that do so many other things besides provide uh, provide um, flavor adds texture and solubility and color and shelf life and bowl life and and all of these things that the industry just can't do without the way that it's the way that it's structured right now
0: Let, let's switch to um, the fascinating meeting you opened the book with this was in 1999 and is kind of a to me I was thinking of of Yalta with Churchill Stalin and uh, Rose, Roosevelt, or maybe the movie in the the scene in the movie The Godfather, right. when the Italian mafia families gathered mm-hmm. together. Right. So
1: this was 1999. It was in the old Pillsbury headquarters in Minneapolis, Minnesota, and the heads of the uh, most of the largest food manufacturers in North America gathered for a very private, rare, and private meeting. Normally these CEOs and presidents are going to add each other's throats for space in the grocery store, but they were brought together to talk about none other than the uh, emerging and growing obesity problem um, and brought there by, and this is one of the most interesting aspects of it, not by consumer activists, but people inside their own country, companies who were growing alarmed about the processed food industry's culpability and responsibility for not just obesity, but diabetes and, and several types of cancers, even they were concerned about linkage to processed foods, and they they pleaded with the executives to do something collectively to turn the corner and improve the health profile of their products and reduce the marketing of the the, the worst stuff to kids, and and. And as you might expect, their their pleas were not well received. Um, one of the most powerful people in the room got up and 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 rebutted their proposal by saying, "Look, you know, we are already being responsible to consumers. If they want a low fat version of our products, we have that on the shelf. Or a low salt. Or we're we're adding whole grains. Or doing this and that. But you've got to understand, we are also." beholden to shareholders and there is no way we're going to mess with the company jewels as he referred to them, meaning salt sugar fat, if that's going to diminish their appeal because that will hurt sales. Which which is just a really important thing. I mean, look, I don't I don't view this industry as this evil empire that intentionally set out to make us us, you know, usually overweight or otherwise ill. I mean these are these are companies doing what companies want to do, which is to make as much money as possible by selling as much product as possible. And, and, and I think that's really important to think about going forward because there was another meeting, that a couple of years after Salt, Sugar, Fat came out. This would have been about 2015, um, where the representatives of the largest companies, again, met in Florida at this time with investment uh, strategists, and one after another of the companies reported dismal profit earnings. And the more forthright among the executives stood up and said and blamed none other than they're losing the confidence of consumers. Um, so there's been a real shift. And it doesn't, it doesn't, take, it doesn't take much to budge the food companies in the right direction but more and more people are caring about what they put in their bodies and that's getting translated for the first time into sales and the companies are starting to respond in some really interesting ways they bring up
0: um, something that has been occurring for probably the last five years what we call legacy brands things like coke pepsi Trisket, these classic brands that baby boomers all grew up with They're actually having declining sales year over year and losing market share. There was a kind of a fascinating contradiction in reading your book, namely that when it comes to food science and developing the Allure, these companies are so remarkably successful. When it comes to responding to market changes, when it comes to responding to market changes, there's a track record of sheer incompetence from the fact that it took Procter and Gamble and General Mills about 10 years after Starbucks changed the whole coffee industry to actually realize maybe they should sell something other than their Maxwell House and Folgers ground Arabica. So within that dichotomy, what do you see? Just on that point, Matt, I mean, I, I, I would sort
1: of see it less as an incompetence factor as as the companies being incredibly risk averse. Um... You know, the line managers on a brand are petrified of failure because that could lead to their losing their job. And, and so many kind of new product introductions fail. Um, so, so there's kind of this built in aversion to take, uh, to take risks in the big companies. And so what you tend to see is that, you know, what passes as new in the grocery store, because you've always got to get new in the grocery store for, for increased sales is a new color on the label or possibly a tweak on the flavor or new size package or uh, a, a new, you know, a new marketing advertising sort of program, as opposed to sort of real new products that innovate and and improve and move things forward. Um, so What you tend to see, and this is certainly now true, too, is that the big innovation comes from, you know, young, risk-taking upstarts who are redoing things. There's a couple of veterans from the U.S. military who started a little company reinventing condiments, including ketchup, using real vegetables, much less sugar, much more flavor, um, and last time i looked they were uh they were just starting to appear in some of the larger grocery stores so so i mean that's typically what we're going to start seeing now is the industry will will dabble in some of these changes they're they're trying to reduce the salt sugar fat in many products they're trying to add more real ingredients but but I think we'll see the real innovation coming from these small startup companies, and there are many, many of them out there.
0: Let's take a look at that allure of convenience. 1989, Fresh Express introduced bag salads, and a lot of analysts expected that consumers would not buy lettuce that was chopped but in a plastic bag. Mm-hmm. How did you deal with that re- a response from industry that they were saying, hey, we're giving people what they want?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think the whole convenience thing is a bit over, over- sold by the processed food industry. The reality being that, you know, so many of the products actually don't save us all that much time. And it, 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 look, it's a difficult thing. If, If you, if you're, you know, the head of a family, you've got kids, your spouse works outside of the home too. I mean, finding time to cook is not easy until you kind of develop a retinue of Of recipes that you can do when you come home from work, that don't take all, that don't take all days. But so much of what I think the industry has sort of passed on to us as as a matter of convenience, a has you know doesn't really save that much time, and b has a big cost. And the big cost to convenience is typically kind of the health profile of the foods. And so. you know, it's, it's, it seems like a smart move to me to, if you're not cooking a lot and you want to cook more in your life, just start sort of finding some things that you can start doing yourself. And one of my favorites is just spaghetti sauce. I mean, it's so much, um, tastier, less salty, less sugary, um, and less expensive actually to go to the store and buy a can, if it's off season, of uh, plum tomatoes and a little bit of garlic and whatever spices you have around in the cabinet, some olive oil and make your own sauce in five or ten minutes, um, than to, to buy sort of the prepared uh, sauces in in the store. So there you can start small if you're just starting out cooking, but but I think it's a really big move. And I think Michael Pollan was on to something big there. I mean, it's cooking seems to sort of change well I, I guess that goes without saying it, it changes our relationship of food in a very significant way um, and I think if you're concerned about weight loss for instance as many of us are um, cooking is a huge first step to getting control of the food in, in your, your life rather than having it control you so I love I love kind of all thinking and efforts going into, A, helping us learn to cook, because many of us have forgotten how to do that, and B, especially when it comes to produce, making produce more convenient. Um, There's a store called Wegmans, a chain in the Northeast, that began sort of pioneering ways to make uh, fruits and vegetables more convenient to use in cooking in the home. Um, B, for instance, will take the ingredients for a stir-fry, um, and package them together for you, fresh cut, cleaned, um, all ready to go to throw into your your frying pan or, or rock. Um, and I think that's and I think that's a really smart way to go, Tim.
0: Yeah, Regman's is remarkable uh, as about a hundred store independent family owned chain. They're quite uh, quite a standout. Where do you see twenty years from now? I know you have a couple kids. Do you have any idea on how, where they'll be purchasing their groceries? If you have any idea on how you would see when they invite you over for dinner, what that might look like? Hmm. Yeah, it could be anything sort of depending on what their kind of
1: own lifestyle sort of develops. I mean, look, they could be, they could become juicers and and get all of their, all of their food and nutrients from juice, they could become like Soylent, you know, uh, fans, and again, kind of drink their meals. Um, maybe they'll live in Kansas, which is, for now anyway, one of the biggest food deserts in the country. I gave a talk recently there to heads of hospitals who were trying to improve hospital food, and they, you know, they were saying to me, "Look, Michael, we, you know, we would have a little farmers' market outside the hospital, but." We don't have any farmers. We have people growing soy and field corn, um, but those are not products for foods that people eat directly. So, um, or rather, they're going into you know processed foods and etc. So, so, so you know, we have to drive to Walmart to get our imported uh, fruits and vegetables. And so, I think there's great hope, uh, not just on the two coasts, west and east, but within the heartland. Of the United States, as more and more people are wanting to eat better and healthier and cook their own food, that that's going to force the industry to change. It will it will encourage farmers to shift over from growing soy and field corn to growing row crops and and produce and nuts, fruits. Um, but that said, um, the ace in the hole for the food industry is what they refer to as food security. Um, you know, the world population is growing, and our ability to sort of feed ourselves with the necessary foods, they think ultimately will have us come running to them begging for calories from anything as long as they're calories. So, so I think to some extent the industry may be also biding its time for that day when... They can service up anything, and we'll be will be entirely grateful for us if if the population grows without sort of increased efficiency in in farming and production. So so there's kind of a there's kind of a there's a dual thing going on out there that we may that may well just also sort of further divide in classes. You know, the HABs will be able to have fresh, local, organic, uh, uh, wonderfully raised uh, foods. Um, and, and and the poor will, will have to make do with something else.
0: Yeah, that's a, a great point in terms of those of us that get to debate about the merits of Whole Foods Amazon when the vast majority of people in the world aren't sure where they're going to get their next meal from. What was your reaction to the uh, response to Michelle Obama's Eat Healthy campaign? Um,
1: you didn't understand the reaction or you didn't understand her campaign?
0: The, the the negative reaction oh yeah to her I campaign. Think that was yeah, I think that was I think that
1: was somewhat political somewhat I mean like when it comes to like school lunches, for example, you have otherwise you know smart sounding parents who balk at the idea of government telling their kids what to eat, which kind of makes no sense to me in that context but 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 there you have it so I think I think a little bit is push back on that, a little of this kind of blowback on the food police, people, if not the government, then um, then you know, people having this notion of what's good for your kid. Um, there's a certain balking of that. I mean I, you know, hats off to Michelle Obama and she at least sort of made food part of this big conversation. Um, and and I might rather have called her campaign let's cook rather than let's move um, because you know uh, exercise has been one of these things promoted by the processed food industry as a solution to obesity and it is not that it's certainly an important part of a of a healthy lifestyle but there's no way you can exercise off the kind of overeating we've been doing um, and so the extent to which sort of let's move gave people the false sense that they could jog away uh, uh, excess weight would be bad. Um, and cooking, it seems to me, is, is incredibly valuable. And And, boy, you're sure not going to get any of that for the the near future from Washington.
0: Do you feel that there will be any tobacco moment that food manufacturers will have to face something like when the cigarette companies finally had to bear responsibility for the social impact of people smoking cigarettes? I I think probably not in a court of law. But I think the first thing you might see,
1: though, is less of a product liability case, but a... um, an effort to recover the cost of taking care of people who have been made sick by food that they're eating, um, which is a parallel to the to the tobacco cases when the state attorneys general sued the tobacco companies for their Medicaid expenses uh, for taking care of people sickened by cigarettes. I think you could see something along those lines. And and one of the problems with the product liability cases, you know, which of the thousands of products in the grocery store do you blame? Um, Do you single out? Can you really blame, you know, soda or one brand of soda? Can you really blame even just the cookie aisle or Hot Pockets or Lunchables? I mean, it's, it's, it will probably be impossible to single out any one product and then. Then you're left with the problem of well, so you've got suddenly hundreds and hundreds of food manufacturers then on the on the defense side, which is which is very different than the tobacco, and, and I think it'll be very difficult to get a jury to sort of come up with a product liability verdict like they did with tobacco. Because look, you mentioned Tate's cookies earlier. I love Tate's cookies. There's nothing wrong with Tate's cookies as a as a, for most people as a treat. Uh, the, the problem has been is sort of our growing dependence on marginally healthy foods or unhealthy foods, kind of in the totality, um, and dependence on foods that we don't think of as treats, but in fact they're probably just as bad for us. Um, that that seems to me to be the kind of a larger issue out there. I,
0: I always buy a bag, and I'm just going to eat four of them and invariably— after four trips from the sofa in my apartment to my kitchen, I just consumed the whole thing as if it was a silver. <laughs> well, that's
1: interesting. No, yeah, I mean, so the next book I'm writing is about addiction and food, and so um, you know, I've been I've been crawling into some very dark holes and difficult things. It's, look, there are there are a certain many number of us who who are like that, who cannot open a bag of. Highly alluring food, and not help but sort of eat the whole thing, and that's a that's a that's a very that's a very hard and compelling thing to deal with. And 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 in those circumstances, I mean, experts in addiction preach abstinence. Um, I mean, if you have to eat the whole package of Oreos, you're probably better off not trying to just limit yourself to, to one or two because you won't you won't make
0: it. As an investigative journalist, you've dealt with the failure of. The government to provide body armor for its soldiers. Issues with detainees in Iraq. Looked at industrial ground. B. How do you judge the success of your work? And basically, sleep at night. I guess spending so much time dealing with these thorny, very complicated issues that you really spend years investigating.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, look, I love being a journalist. It. it, you know, it's hard to quantify what impact you have. I mean, the feedback from individuals that I get, um, notes and emails and letters, you know, Salt, Sugar, Fat was a number one New York Times bestseller, not just a bestseller, but the number one nonfiction book, is kind of huge testament. To people caring about what the facts are and wanting to have control over something as important as food in their life and using those facts and using the knowledge about what the industry does to, to control processor, not to avoid it necessarily, but to control it rather than have it control them.
0: The book is Salt, Sugar, Fat. It's a remarkable read. Also, check out MichaelMossBooks.com. There's some terrific content on there, including a, a really wonderful and insightful remaking broccoli campaign video.
1: Yeah, I love that. We could do a whole show on we could do a whole show on that. And yeah, there's some good video on there. And but love to hear from any of your uh, any of your listeners. Uh,
0: thanks so much. You're welcome. Great talking to you. Uh, if you get to Court Street Pastry, eat a cannoli form. Best uh, cannoli uh, in Brooklyn. Absolutely. Check us out at cornucopia.show, subscribe, rate us on iTunes. Thanks for listening. Sugar's only sweetness Salt is ocean tears And you were my only weakness For years and years and years You little yellow sweetie You were hiding in a jar my mind is gone completely. Take off the lid and there you are. You're. My-